Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, things look a little bit different this morning. Our, uh, our friends at the rec center told us yesterday, they said, hey, we've got some bad news. The divider is broken, so you guys are just going to have to make it work. And we said, hey, we can do that. So thankful for all of our volunteers and leaders that jumped into action and made this possible. Thank, uh, I thank you just for you know, being willing to sit a little bit closer to your neighbors this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Mark 14. Uh, we're going to be in a couple places, but Mark 14 is where we're going to spend most of our time as we walk through the book of Mark together as a church family. Now, as you're finding Mark 14, specifically verses 66 through 72, um, I'll, I'll give you just some advice maybe as, as you're planning your summer or enjoying uh, the good weather that it seems like now we're entering into, and that is the location of one of the best kept secrets in Ohio. I think one of the best kept secrets in Ohio is Hocking Hills State Park. Uh, you know, maybe some of you would agree with me. If you've been there, you know that it's amazing because, you know, with, within like a two hours drive, uh, you go to a place where, you know, uh, there, there are several really amazing waterfalls that feels like it's just kind of right in our backyard. Uh, I, I love, you know, being able to go on hikes. We went there a couple years ago, and uh, it was me, Abby. We just had Brooks at the time, and, you know, we're hiking to all these different waterfalls, and it's great. I, I think one of my favorite waterfalls there is Cedar Falls. Now, the interesting thing about Cedars, Cedar Falls is that you hike down to it. And if you're someone who enjoys hiking, you know that typically a hike is up. Right? You're trying to get to a summit, uh, you, know, you want to reach kind of the apex of whatever mountain you're climbing. Maybe there's you know, this panoramic vista that, that you're kind of hoping for, and so you're, you're hiking up the whole time. It's kind of this trek up, and then you, know, you get the hike down. Now, the interesting thing about Cedar Falls is that the, the waterfall is really kind of in the valley. It's where this river you know, flows over, and so to get there, you go down, not up. And so the path down to where Cedar Falls is has, uh, you know, staircases, they're long, lengthy, uh, you know, there are descents, there are, you know, different areas where uh, you, you find yourself just going deeper, you're going under the trees, things are actually getting darker. And then you round this corner, there's this pool of water and you look up and there's just this magnificent waterfall and the rock face that has been carving for decades, centuries. It's, it's amazing to behold. Now, I tell you that because as I read through Mark 14 again and again over the past few weeks, it reminds me of that descent. Uh, you're going down, you're starting to sweat, you're you know, trying to you know, keep from slipping out, uh, things are getting darker, and then eventually you get to this moment in which you behold this beautiful waterfall. Mark 14 reminds me of that hike because what we find is that in one of the lowest and darkest moments of the Apostle Peter's life is when he is going to see the magnificence and grace and mercy of Christ in a way in which he would otherwise not be able to behold. I want you to remember as we look at uh, the, the book of Mark that it is being told from the firsthand perspective of Peter. 
John Mark, the author of the book of Mark, he was a dear friend of Peter's. And so he's writing this as kind of a, a firsthand account with Peter as the source of everything that he's writing. I think that's important for us to know because what he's going to give us today, specifically in his denial of Christ, is one of the lowest, most demoralizing moments in his life, perhaps his darkest moment in life. Now, how many of us would want that moment in our life, maybe you can pinpoint, pinpoint one in particular, that how many of us would want that memorialized for history, for the world forever? I mean, think about that. If, you know, uh, think about maybe if, if you're a parent and you've taken family portraits uh, and you know that you get all the family portraits back and if your photographer has a good sense of humor, they've included a couple that you know you would never hang in your house. Right? The moment where you're yelling at one kid for punching another kid and their face is like, you know, that's not the one that you're like, you know, if this was a canvas over the fireplace, I really think it would just be amazing. Oh, we, we try to hide those moments, right? Where we're weakest, where we're angry, where who we want to be isn't who we actually are. We, we don't want people to know those moments. And so we look at Peter and we see that he gives greater details throughout the book of Mark in his moments of failure than he does in some of the times that Jesus commends him outright. Why does he do that? Why would he make so much effort to expose his sin? This story isn't about him. This story is about Christ and the mercy of Christ and the long suffering of Christ and the patience of Christ and the grace of Christ. He's saying, may I be seen as low that Christ would be exalted above all. May that be our aim as well. It would not be about us, but that Christ would be magnified in his mercy through our mistakes, through our failures. And so I hope that this sermon will be somewhat like me saying, hey, let's, let's walk this journey together. Let's go into the valley of, of what perhaps might be the reality of our sin. There will be parts of this sermon that will be uncomfortable and unpleasant as it has been for me studying this week. And at the same time, I think, I think we're gonna be somewhere in the middle whenever we say, but look to Christ. Look at the water that refreshes. Look at this fountain that cannot be dried up of grace and mercy. And then we're gonna come back up. We're gonna experience the, the favor of God through the face of Christ. And then we're gonna be sent out into the world because there are a lot of people who deal with failure and they don't know what to do with it. There's a lot of people who are ashamed of who they are and they don't know where to go with their shame and guilt. And you and I get to go into the world and we say, behold the face of Christ. He who is living water to weary souls, to those who are in a dry and thirsty land, he says, come to me, receive rest. So as we look at this passage, I wanna consider six steps for walking through the valley of sin with Jesus. Six steps for walking through the valley of sin with Jesus. The first step is that we must recognize that Jesus is the son of God who saves. Step one, we must recognize who Jesus is, that he is the son of God who saves. Now, this is gonna be a little bit of review, but I want you to see that there's great intentionality in it, uh, that we see that Christ is, is the one who saves and that Peter knew that truth from firsthand experience. 
Look at Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. This is a story from right in the middle of the book of Mark. We read that, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who answers? Peter. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We we see here this moment of faith in the life of Peter, that he recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God who saves. Now, this takes place right in the middle of the book of Mark, and I think that that was very intentional. I think it is in this moment that Peter and the reader of the book of Mark should reach the same conclusion. This is no ordinary man that I am in the presence of. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the awaited Christ who has come into the world to redeem the world. When we walk through the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, what do we see? We see Jesus going into a synagogue and teaching with great authority. We see him exercising demons that they would flee at the sound of his voice. We see him placing his hand upon lepers and he calls them clean and their disease dissipates. We see uh, these moments in which he causes the blind to see. There's a moment in which the sea is raging underneath the boat that he and his disciples sit in. And he calls out to those waves and says, peace be still. And they calm. The disciples looked at one another in bewilderment and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And I think what the Holy Spirit is doing in Mark chapter four, whenever that question is asked, is he's inviting us to ask the same question. Who is it that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? This is no ordinary man. This must truly be the son of God. And Jesus draws out that question in Mark eight, doesn't he? They're headed to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place that was uniquely known for the worship of pagan gods. It would have been like Jesus leading his people to modern day, you know, a a Muslim mosque or a Hindu temple, or even a place that's devoted to pleasure and self-indulgence like the Las Vegas Strip. He, he, He brings his disciples into a place where there are these distorted recipients of worship. And he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Among all of these gods that other people worship, who do you say that I am? I'm not worried about what other people say about me. This is a choice that you need to make. And Peter, ever eager to break the silence, chirps up and says, well, you you are the Christ. Uh, Matthew gives us even more. It adds by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds to him and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he says, and and you are Peter. Now it's interesting, the the name that Peter has is Petros. Uh, It's it's this, you know, uh, word for for stone. He, He says, but you are Peter. And on this rock, on this confession that I am the son of God, the Messiah who has come to save the world, I will build my church. Even there, Jesus is saying, you're right, Peter, but don't get overconfident. Rely on me, trust me, build your life upon me because I am the rock and you are but a stone. Let me ask, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the savior of all who believe? 
And if you believe that truth, then how do you keep it in front of your eyes when everything in this world is competing for your attention and worship? How do you keep the reality of who Christ is in front of your face? Because the reality is that we are weak. Step two, as we descend into the valley of dealing with our sin, is to realize that we are weak in our own strength. Realize you are weak in your own strength. I must realize I'm weak apart from Christ. And Jesus tells Peter as much in Mark 14, what we saw earlier in this chapter. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, being Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all said the same. Step two here is to realize that you are weak in your own strength. We see Peter's on, uh, overconfidence and, and pride on display here. You know, whenever this takes place, days, weeks, months have passed since that confession in Mark 8 that Jesus is Lord. And, and, and what happens? They're on their way to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says, you will all fall away. And, and what does Peter say ever so confidently? Well, well, they might all fall away, but I won't. I mean, think about that for a moment. He has the audacity to, to correct the Son of God. He says, uh, no, you who is the Word of God in flesh, let me, let me correct you real quick. I, 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 won't, I won't do that. I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, I, I, would, I would like to think that if such a dreadful prophecy was uttered about me again, once that was reiterated, it, that might bring kind of this wave of humility over me to think, could I really do that? And yet Peter sees it as an opportunity to, to kind of re-up his loyalty and say, no, even if, I, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you, Jesus. And what do we know? Before the sun rises the next morning, his pride, his confidence, his bravery is gone. And then Jesus fixes his eyes on Peter, right? He says, no, no, truly I tell you that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Imagine he says that tenderly with great pain in his voice, knowing what the next couple of hours would hold. Brother, sister, let me remind you that we must constantly don the spiritual armor that Christ has entrusted to us that if we do not abide in Christ, we will not abound in fruit, that the flesh is weak, although the spirit is willing. Let me remind you that Jesus said, pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil because I know just how weak I am. To not trust in ourselves, but to trust in Christ. And just as Jesus promised, the shepherd was struck and the sheep fled. Yeah, we saw Peter confident on the mountain and yet sleepy in the garden. Peter here is brave and courageous, right? Quick to boast about his allegiance, but then too weak to pray with Christ in the garden for even an hour as Jesus prepared for his incoming death. 
Uh, we see that, that Peter here, he says, I will follow you to the end. And then whenever Jesus is seized in the garden, he flees. We see just how weak he is. And it is a picture of our own weakness in the moment of sin. We get to verse 50 and we see this picture of the Lord alone and yet sound, surrounded by his accusers. He is alone. His disciples left him and they fled. We continue to descend into this valley and our view grows dark ever still. This brings us to step three, that we would remember the ways that we have sinned against God. This is where it's hard, right? This is where the lump forms in my throat as I think about these things. How good, how gracious God has been to me to even make himself known and yet the countless ways that I have still sinned against him. We get Peter's firsthand experience in verses 66 through 72. We read that as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it for the second time. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Here he, he reflects. I imagine with tears in his eyes telling John Mark this story yet again just to get it right. As he pins these words, he's broken over his sin as he remembers how he sinned against the Lord. Now we look at this story and it seems that Peter must have mustered up some courage after what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He, he goes into the courtyard after following the captors of Jesus at a distance. And what is happening just inside the upper chambers? Jimmy preached on this a couple weeks ago. We see that the high priest of that time is putting on trial the great high priest who is Jesus. Uh, there is this ironic reverse of roles in that the judge of man, Christ himself, is being judged by men. The innocent is being declared guilty by those who are guilty themselves. And without wavering and with great resolve, we see that Christ stands fast. He declares that he is the son of man. He identifies himself as he who is spoken of in the prophecy of Daniel. He says, I am, I am. I imagine his voice would have shook the room, or at least it should have. The Alpha and Omega in their presence, identifying himself and yet what happens, overcome with self-righteous emotion, the high priest in that time renders a judgment that was unjust. He tore his clothes, and one by one of them, the men in that room approached Jesus. They spat on him, they punched him, they blindfolded him, they hit him, they mocked him, and accused him of things that he had not committed. This section of, of Scripture forms kind of this, this mark and sandwich that we've talked about before where, where here Peter says, I will not deny you. And then we see Jesus standing fast. And then we see Peter's denial actually takes place. 
verse 66, looks out the window. Uh, we see that Jesus is in the upper chamber experiencing an unfair trial. And then just outside, below in the courtyard, we find Peter, verse 66. And Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now, John in his gospel tells us that he actually knew the high priest. He would have probably known some of the servants that were there. He came from a pretty well-off family. And so he gets Peter in. And so Peter goes in and he's warming himself by the fire. Uh, he wants to kind of have a vantage point of what's going on with Jesus. He wants to be in the know and yet also wants to kind of distance himself. And so uh, what happens? He, he's there by the fire and just trying to blend in and the fire begins to illuminate his face. And one of the servant girls walks by. And, and the first word that's used for the, the glance that she makes is, is just that, just a glance. It says, and, and seeing him, the servant girl walked by. But then you keep reading and it says, she looked at him. This is our word for stare, right? She's finally able to place him. Uh, she recognizes that he's familiar and she's like, but how do I know him? How do I know him? Oh yeah, he's the follower of Jesus, the Nazarene. During that time, Judean Jews typically uh, looked down upon those who were in kind of the Northern area of, of Galilee. And so uh, I would imagine that the way that she words this is kind of a derogatory remark toward Jesus and anyone who would identify themselves with him. So she says, well, you, you, you were with Jesus, right? And, and how does he respond? He just plays dumb, doesn't he? It's a denial nonetheless, but look at verse 68. I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I want you to see that there is a progressive nature in, in the denials of Peter. This first one, he's just kind of like, oh, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying and just kind of dismisses himself. And the second one, he's going to outright reject Jesus. And by the third one, he, he grows so passionately heated in his denial of Christ that he begins invoking curses on himself and everyone around him. Let me warn you of the rapid and progress, progressive nature of sin like an ember that jumps out of a campfire, if it is not dealt with quickly, it can become destructive in a matter of moments, seconds, hours, days, months, in a way that perhaps we couldn't even estimate the damage it would cause. There's a progressive nature to his sin and may this act as a warning to us who might just kind of be, you know, harboring a little pocket of sin, you know, what, you know I, I'm just, you know, just kind of denying Jesus in this one little area. But if you look at the rest of my life, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's for the Lord. And yet what happens? We see that it grows and grows. We, we take heed the words of King Solomon who says, catch for us the little foxes, the little foxes that sneak in and seek to destroy the vineyard. Friend, what are the little foxes in your life that could destroy the entire vineyard? A small argument with your spouse that left untouched turns into a loveless marriage. A small moral compromise here or there that years from now will turn you into someone that is unrecognizable. We consider our sin. We remember our sin that we may embrace our Savior who deals with it. At the close of verse 68, the rooster crows, but almost in the background. Peter's not even realizing it's happening. It would be later that he would recognize what surely and truly took place. 
So what does Peter do? Well, he recognizes his cover's been blown. And so he makes his way from the fire, kind of in the center of the courtyard, and now he goes out to the gate. Right, so he makes his way out to the gate. This way, he's still got a good vantage point of what's going on with Jesus and the chamber. He, he knows what's happening over here. And yet, if he needs to make a quick escape, surely he can. This would be uh, the easiest way to have some sort of getaway. But, but imagine for a moment that even at, at the distance from the fire where, where everybody else was standing, the servant girl begins to point. And she's like, no, that, that guy right there. And then the bystanders, they're like, wait, that one? Oh, him? Oh, wait, he, he's the one who cut off Malchus's ear in the garden? John tells us that one of the other servants of the high priest was actually related to Malchus, the guy that got his ear sliced off by Peter's sword. Okay, so if there was someone among the disciples that would be recognizable, it would be Peter. He's the spokesperson. He's the guy, right? And so they begin to say, like, wait, that's, that's Peter? And, and the different accounts show that uh, there were probably multiple times that, that people were kind of interrogating Peter in this way. And then he says, no, I, I don't know him. They say this man is one of them in verse 70 says, and again, he denied it. Uh, we can't just kind of write off Peter's denial here as, you know, a moment of weakness or a failure. You know, maybe he didn't understand what they were saying. Maybe he was right the first time. No, he's He's committing an outright lie about his relationship with the living God. He is breaking the ninth commandment in regard to who he says Jesus is. He is lying. And then the the third denial comes, and it really draws out kind of the heated passion of Peter's utter rejection. Luke would tell us that about an hour has passed here in between these denials. Imagine just how long that hour would have felt for Peter. The bystanders, they begin to draw conclusions after he's denied this multiple times, and they say, wait, no, we, we know that you were with Jesus because you are a Galilean. In Matthew's account, they actually say that his accent is what gives him away. They say, we know that you're not from around here because of the way that you're talking. Surely the only reason that you would be here right now in this courtyard is if you were truly one of the followers of Christ. And he uses such strong language to invoke curses upon himself and them that it is the same language that they would use to take a solemn oath during that time period. He's almost screaming at this point. He says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And in that moment, a rooster crows. He recognizes it's the second time that he's heard that same rooster crowed. The murmuring of the bystanders, I imagine, would have been hushed in that moment as his voice echoed through the courtyard. And the silence is filled by the crow of a rooster. And a sword is as if it's cutting through his heart. Those words that Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives rush back into his memory. He says, I have done exactly what I said I would never do to my Lord. His pride is demolished. Isn't it ironic here that the animal that is known for its prideful strut is what brings remembrance of Peter's transgression against God, draws forth his tears of humility, he broke down, as verse 72 says, and he wept, he wept bitterly. Now let me ask, do you see yourself in the story? Do you see yourself in this story? 
I look at the life of Peter as I read through a book like Mark and I think, you know, there are so many moments here that I wish that I could be a part of, that that I wish I could experience. I I wish that I could have been there on the day that Jesus fed the 5,000 and I'm just passing the baskets around and I'm like, maybe it's almost empty, but then I get it back from the next person and it's full again. And I'm just like, this is amazing that I get to be a part of this, that I get a front row seat to the miracles of Christ. I, I think about the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus brings Peter up to the mountain. And then he sees Elijah and Moses and Jesus standing there in his glory. And and the voice of God the Father rings out saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I think about walking on water. And I'm like, man, I I would love to do that. And there are so many experiences in Peter's life that I think, you know what? In my lifetime, I will probably never experience that firsthand. But you know what? I get to the denial of Peter and it is all too familiar. Maybe you feel like that. You know, our our denial of Christ isn't always with our words. Sometimes it's with our time. Sometimes it's with the way that we manage our priorities. Sometimes it's in the money that we withhold or the selfishness that keeps us from serving someone else in need. Sometimes our denial of Christ isn't in what we have done, but what we fail to do. Sometimes our denial of Christ is in the posture of our heart. And yet we recognize that not three times, but innumerable times have we denied the Lordship of Christ and the one who loves us. And the response, we break down, we weep. Is this not what sin should do in our lives? That we should be grieved for what grieves the heart of God? And we look at what Peter did in the courtyard and we're reminded that this isn't so different from what Adam, our first father, did in the garden. You see, the moment that Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he is rejecting the relationship that he had with God. God said, follow me. I created you for relationship with me. Don't eat of that forbidden fruit. Trust me, walk with me, be near with me, identify with me. And Adam takes the fruit as if that relationship did not hold the weight that it deserved, as if it was not as significant as it was. We find here Peter follows suit, relationship with Christ, and yet no, reject him. Have we not all done the same? like our first father, Adam, rejecting Christ's lordship, seeking to live out our own way, follow our own desires. For some of you, perhaps you're not a Christian. You'd say, you know what, if if I was to describe my life right now, I would say, you know, there are some some areas in which I, I kind of, you know, gravitate toward the, the moral norms of Christianity, but my life isn't defined by complete surrender to the lordship of Christ. If, if that's you, would you recognize that as sin? Would your heart be grieved by that? And would you turn to Christ who has the ability to forgive your sins, to draw you into a relationship with the living God? If you're a Christian, perhaps you would look at the denial of Peter and say, you know, there are many times in which my life has reflected that I have rejected Christ, that I don't know him, in the way that I've claimed to know him. What does your denial of Jesus typically look like? I think, I think sometimes, and don't hear me the wrong way whenever I say this, 
But I think sometimes we are so eager to, to run to the forgiveness of God and to sing the chorus of God's grace that we just kind of take lightly the sin that demands it. We're, we're so, we're so, you know, Jesus loves me. You know, he's given me this grace. It doesn't matter how I live. He loves me anyways. And sometimes we're so quick to run there that we're not actually grieved about our sin in such a way that produces transformation that relies on full dependence on Christ. When was the last time that you broke down and wept for an attitude within your heart or an action that you committed? When was the last time that you felt the, the sweet pain of repentance. James 4.4 compares this, this kind of love for something other than the Lord in that moment to spiritual adultery. I mean, could you imagine if you're married, seeing your spouse in the arms of another lover, how that would pain you. And perhaps you're sitting here and you think, whoa, that's too far, man. But if you feel like that, perhaps you don't understand the gravity of sin and the weight of what takes place whenever we disobey our Lord or reject him. I think often, if I'm just being honest, I don't hate my sin enough. And perhaps you'll cut me some slack because maybe you're there too. I think I'm, I'm far too often satisfied with just kind of handling some of the particularly troublesome aspects of my sin, right? The kind that make it inconvenient or the kind that make my relationships difficult. I, I like to kind of peel back all of the fruit of my sin without perhaps getting to some of the root things that I worship like my comfort or my convenience or my desire for other people's approval that would ultimately cause me to care more about myself or others than Christ. But by doing this, I stop short of all that Christ offers. I stop short of beholding the grace of Christ. As the Puritan Thomas Watson would say, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And the more bitter our sin, the sweeter we see the forgiveness and grace of Christ. Maybe you've, you know, entered into a store where, where you're going to buy perfume or cologne or something. You walk around the store and you see that there's these little jars of coffee beans everywhere. Now, those are not for sale. It's odd that they're even in there. And yet what, what you notice is that whenever you walk around, uh, you're supposed to smell these beans in between smelling all the perfume or cologne or whatever it is that you're buying that has this, you know, fragrance, candles, you know. They're intentionally bitter. They're, they're cheap beans. If you know that I love coffee, you know that I would never drink that, the coffee that is you know, made of those beans, okay? The, these beans are, I know that sounds really pretentious, but it's kind of an inside joke, so please don't judge me if, if this is your first time here. Um, so, so you smell those beans and you're like, oh, that smells so bad. But then you, you pick up a candle, perfume, and man, it smells so much sweeter. Right, whenever, we, whenever we consider our sin, and we're repulsed by it. We're like, man, I can't believe I did that. But then we run to, to acknowledge the mercy of Christ when we see the way that he loves us. Oh, we're reminded of how sweet it is that we could be in relationship with a loving God. The bitterness of sin. Oh, how could I do that? How could I say that? I already know they're hurting. How could I be so quick-tempered? How could I be so impatient? And then we see how patient Christ is with us. We breathe it in. It's it reminds us of how sweet the gospel is. You see Peter's recognition of his sin in verse 72 is perhaps the most hope-filled aspect of this passage because it brings him to a genuine repentance that enables him to behold the beauty of Christ in a way that he would not before. 
Which brings us to the fourth step. Repent of the sins that grieve God's heart. Repent of the sins that grieve God's heart. Peter broke down and wept here. And we should ask, what, what drew these tears from Peter's eyes? What caused such sorrow? Only God can produce this kind of attitude towards sin. I mean, you ever thought about this? People that are not Christians, people that don't know the Lord, feel bad about their sin, typically. I mean, a lot of times sin makes you feel guilty because we have, uh, you know, the, the morality that Christ, uh, that God has impressed upon our hearts being made in his image. And so typically people feel bad about sin. Also, sin creates a lot of discomfort, right? I mean, think about the, you know, getting in an argument or uh, being careless or, you know, not doing your job and squandering your time at work. All of these things make life more difficult for you. So typically, a lot of people feel bad whenever there's sin in their life. But Peter's sorrow goes deeper. Uh, Sometimes sin is just simply not in our best interest. And yet Peter here is not focused on himself as he is weeping these tears. Some people don't like sin because they just don't want to feel like they're a bad person. Nobody wants to think like, oh, I'm the kind of person that does that. I think Jerry Bridges puts it well in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, whenever he says, sometimes we are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God, right? Sometimes, I mean, if you're a Christian, you know this feeling, right? You're, you're mad whenever, whenever you do something that you said you wouldn't do anymore, but you're, you're disappointed because you messed up your personal scorecard, right? Like, you're like, okay, yeah, sin grieves the heart of God. But what you're most upset about in your moment of moral failure is, man, I, I broke my streak, right? I, I outbursted this person at work or I had to clear my search history again and I haven't done that in three months. And that's what you're really upset about. Not the fact that you have sinned against a holy God and grieved the heart of the one who gave himself for you. When you get to that point is whenever you realize what true repentance is. You see, Paul, whenever he writes to the church in Corinth, he says there's a difference, right? There's a difference between worldly grief that comes from realizing your sin. It makes you feel bad for a little bit, but it doesn't actually bring about change. He says, but there's another grief. It's godly grief over sin. And it's actually a recognition of sin that says, this is so bad, I can't handle it on my own. This is so bad and deserving of death that in order to deal with this, someone's gonna have to die for me. Someone's gonna have to take the rap for me. I can't deal with this. And if there will be any kind of change in my life, I'm going to need an otherworldly Holy Spirit infused kind of resurrection power living in me to change. And guess what? That's exactly what Christ does when you repent. He says, you know what? I'll take your sin. I'll impute my righteousness to you. The power of the Holy Spirit in you will bring about change in a way that shows you that you need the gospel every single day. And guess what? You've got it. You've got it. That's grace. That's mercy. That's the gospel. You see, Luke gives us this other detail, this moment in which in his lowest, darkest hour, he has just denied Christ again. And you know what happens in that moment? Whenever he recognizes that he has just denied the Lord again, he looks across the courtyard. Luke 22, 60 through 62, Peter said, man, I I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The moment that he denied Christ, he looked across the courtyard and saw his beaten Lord. He beheld Christ in his darkest moment as Jesus was on his way to atone for the very sins that Peter had just committed. Peter looked, he saw Jesus. And I imagine that Jesus looked at him knowing what he had done and knowing what he was about to do. And with great resolve, he went to the cross knowing that he would deal with Peter's sin and soon restore him for it. Jesus already had the marks of his accusers on his body and he would take more marks, ultimately be nailed to the cross to redeem Peter. Whenever I read this story, I recognize that this moment is both bitter and beautiful. Do you know how Peter felt? Do you know how Peter felt whenever he, he recognized the weight of his sin and then he turned and saw Christ? Have you ever been acquainted with this kind of grief over sin? Have you ever felt this kind of guilt and shame? Have you ever felt so unworthy to be loved by God, to, to be in a relationship with Jesus, better yet, to even know the name of Jesus? Have you ever felt like that before? Here we come to this passage and see that it is a beautiful grace to behold the face of Christ in the midst of our sin. It is a beautiful grace. This was an act of mercy to behold the face of Christ in the midst of his sin how great it is to look upon the light of Christ whenever we are in the utter darkness of our sin. What great mercy it is to see the one who saves us whenever we weep bitterly for the sins that he bore in our place. We finally reached it. We finally reached the bottom of the valley that we could behold our savior and see this personified gospel on display that in the moment that you're burdened by your sin, you must behold your savior. What's the main point of this entire sermon? That you must behold your savior when you are burdened by your sin. It's not that you would work harder. It's not that you would try to clean yourself up so that you could come back into the presence of God. It's not doing penance. It's not behavior management. It is beholding Christ in the moment that you are burdened by your sin. You see the day that that we walked down to Cedar Falls. We'd been kept indoors most of the day. There were thunderstorms rolling over. We'd gone there, you know, a couple days before. We were there for three days total and we'd kept, been kept indoors because it was raining thunderstorms and we, we made the descent down there again, but this time was different. You could hear the roar of the waterfall before you even got there. And it occurred to me that, man, all that rain has been coming. All that rain has been welling up and eventually it's gonna flow over this waterfall and we get to the bottom and the pools are feet higher than they had been before. And there are parts of this waterfall where water is breaking through where it had not come through in perhaps years. There were places that were once dry that were now soaking wet as water streamed down the face of this cliff. And through the, through the darkness in that descent, you see that the 
the beauty of this waterfall was magnified. It was multiplied. What I'm saying is this, that the sin that we hate gives us a deeper knowledge of the Savior that we love. The sin that we hate gives us a deeper knowledge of the Savior that we love. It magnifies his mercy. The depth of our sin shows the height of his grace. Our rebellion, our waywardness shows us just how far Christ would pursue us when we were dead in our sin. As the Puritan Richard Sibbs says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And let me tell you, I have given Christ countless times to forsake me in my wandering and not once has he left me. And he will not let you be snatched out of his hand. And so what do we do? The invitation is Acts 3.19, to repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This daily act of repentance, this moment by moment of confessing our sins to God doesn't turn us into a melancholy, just, you know, bitter people. It turns us into people of great joy because we are able to smell the bitterness of our sin and the sweetness of Christ at the same time, recognizing that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so seeing the beauty of Christ, we're led up and out. Step five, receive the forgiveness and restoration that Jesus offers. Receive the restoration and forgiveness that Jesus offers. I'll be quick, but this is too good to not see the full picture that John gives in addition to what Mark has not. In John 21, we read this, that when they had finished breakfast, this is Peter and, and Jesus, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, this to him the third time, why would Jesus ask him the same question three times? Well, to complete the restoration of the way that he had sinned against him the three times before. He said, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. It's interesting, if you look back at, at Mark 14, at the same time that Jesus prophesied that all of his disciples would fall away, he said, but when I'm raised, I will gather you together again in Galilee. He's speaking about this moment. And here, loving Peter, he takes him away from the group and he says, hey, I want you to know, right? I'm gonna give you a chance to experience my full restoration standing again near a charcoal fire. And the same smell would have been in the air that was burning on that night that Peter betrayed him, gives him three opportunities to once again say and declare his love for Christ. Here we see the links that Christ was going to and to enable Peter to have a fresh start. Peter fled from him in the garden and Jesus here says, follow me. And he did. 
Jesus is tender here. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. It's as if he is saying, Peter, you have not disqualified yourself. I came for people like you. Peter, you haven't disqualified yourself from following me. I came to seek and to save sinners. Don't you realize that what you did was the very thing that I came to redeem and save you from? Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're like, man, I don't know if God could love me. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm, I'm on my fourth marriage. If that's you, then make this fourth marriage the most God-honoring, Christ-centered marriage that you've ever had and glorify God through it because he'll enable you to do that. Maybe you're here and you, you feel a ton of regret from whatever happened last night. And the great thing is that because Christ is resurrected in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father, you can walk out of this room and never live like that again. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know, I've got a family, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but I've never just kind of taken ownership and begin to pray with them or, or lead my kids through the Bible. And guess what? The Lord will give you the strength to do that. Maybe you're here and, and you know, during communion today, you need to say, Lord, what does it look like for me to repent and to trust you? And that might be opening up your phone and deleting an app that is taking too much of your time. Maybe for you, it is being baptized. What does it look like to trust the Lord completely? Here we see that, that the Lord restores Peter. He rescues him from his sin to then send him out into the world. Let me say real quickly, if if Jesus can kind of show this kind of patience and kindness and grace toward Peter, we can show that kind of grace and love and mercy toward others within the church, within our marriages, within our friendships, within our roommate situations, that this would inform the way that we now deal with others. And so Peter here is restored by Christ. And then, and then it's amazing to see the legacy of Peter that follows. Step six, resolve to live as one that Christ has redeemed and restored. This, this past week, again and again, I read the books of First and Second Peter with this story in mind. And I think it changed the way in which I read the letters of First and Second Peter. Uh, to, to see that he was one who denied Christ under persecution and suffering. And then the Lord uses him as he, as Peter is, you know, writing the books of First and Second Peter whenever he is under the persecution of Rome. He, he's being oppressed under the hand of Nero and he will ultimately be martyred under the Roman emperor Nero. He's writing to the church that is suffering. It is amazing that God is so good that in his sovereign mercy, he would use our suffering, our mistakes, our failure, and even our sin for his glory and for the good of others. So look at the way that Peter writes that we may live out this relationship with Christ. Peter instructs us to suffer with purpose because of what he experienced. First Peter 1, 6 through 7. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His faith was tested. And then when it was weak, it failed. But when his faith was in Christ, he said, you will endure. Peter builds up those who stray. First Peter 2.25 says, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For those who are doubting, those who are drifting away from the Lord, return to he who is the shepherd of your souls. 
hear it from Peter, one who experienced that kind of mercy. Peter charges us to take courage when confronted by the world. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15, think about his denial and think about the instruction he gives here. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter here is telling Christians to do the opposite of what he did in the courtyard. He says, be ready to suffer. He was unprepared. He says, make a defense for the hope that lies within you. Whenever he did not make a defense for the hope that lies within him, he is saying that the Christian empowered with the Holy Spirit is able to do now what he was not able to do in the courtyard and that you can give a defense for the hope that lies within you as he then would. Peter encourages us to suffer with joy. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ as he was, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We could go into how he warned against the danger of pride saying God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He was opposed and then received that grace. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11, he reminds us that the Lord will preserve us to the end. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He says, one day your suffering will be over. One day your faith will be sight. One day you will see Christ the Savior, your Lord. But until then, these four things Christ will do. He himself will do, First Peter says. He will restore you. That presupposes that you will have moments of failure in which you will need to be restored. He will confirm you. Uh, that presupposes that you will have moments in which you struggle and need to be confirmed. It says that Christ himself will strengthen you that you will be weak and in need of strength, that he will establish you like a home built upon the rock. Though the world may give way, you will not be moved. And we find in the life of Peter that he would have another opportunity to be questioned about his relationship with Jesus, but handle the situation far differently. Roughly 30 years after his faith was weak in the courtyard, he confessed Christ as Lord and he would be crucified upside down, just as Christ had predicted at the end of John, and under the hands of the evil Roman, the evil emperor of Rome, Nero, he would declare that Christ is Lord, that he was the one who took the burden of his sin, that he would behold the glory of Christ, and that he would die with Christ because he lived for him and found life in his name. Let's pray.